0: G'day and welcome to a Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ, the DJ, and I'm your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Fellows, as well as a CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if you mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Now, of course, my intro is a little bit longer today because uh, the School of Graduate Studies changed its name. And we've included our postdoctoral fellows as part of our title and brought them under our wing because they're one of those. They're not students and they're not faculty. So we, we brought them in with us as well. Today, though, I'd like to introduce you to Caitlin Moole who is doing a PhD in health quality under the supervision of Dr. Christina Godfrey. Welcome to Grad Chat, Caitlin.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Great to have you. And I guess I should have said at the beginning, this is one of our first ones for the fall. So we're, we're happy to have you along. And And now you're in the health quality program, which is quite a unique program, really, because it is online. So can you tell me a bit about your background and why you chose to do this particular program?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So I did my undergrad in medical sciences at Brock University, and during that time I became involved in some volunteering with public health and uh, some quality improvement research, and so that kind of, you know, sparked an interest in both of those things. And so I went on to do a Master of Public Health at Brock University, And during that time, I did a practicum with the Continuous Quality Improvement Locally Driven Collaborative Project, which is through Public Health Ontario. And it's really looking at kind of continuous quality improvement in public health across the province. And so there I, I really realized, okay, I absolutely love research. I really love this quality improvement stuff. And what can I do to keep learning about this great stuff? And it really, the timing could not have been better. Right around that time is when the PhD in health quality program was created. Right. And so I thought, this is it. This is for me. I love this. And I was really fortunate to get accepted into the program. So here I am and a very happy third year student now, actually. I'm, I'm just finishing up my third year in, in the PhD in health quality.
0: And it's, and it's online?
1: It is. It's a distance program. So
0: I not... didn't have to move too far. <laughs>
1: exactly. Still happily here at home in Niagara. But I, I have to say we had to spend two weeks uh, at Queen's on campus in the first year and I absolutely loved it. So I do love the Queen's campus and Kingston is beautiful.
0: And I, I guess that's one of the downfalls of an online program. You don't often get to see the campus properly or get the feel of being on campus but you do have your ready-made cohort where i know a lot of you will start together and finish together kind of thing so so that's nice because otherwise it'd be hard to create a bit of community when you're not here on campus Absolutely. I I love
1: that word community, actually, because I think that's so key when you're doing a PhD. And you might think with the online program that that's something that would be missing. Uh, But that was something that myself and my colleagues really tried to create right from the start. So we actually meet uh, every couple of weeks right now, just virtually, right, to keep that connection and that kind of community created from a distance, because I think it would be a lot harder to get through this program from a distance if I didn't have some people to kind of go through it with, right? So. Right.
0: Oh, no, that's that's great. And are you still working or or not? Yeah, so I still work.
1: My program is really unique in that a lot of people can actually work full time while they're doing this program. For myself, I've chosen not to do that. And so I just do kind of part time sort of work on the side. And so that actually kind of ties into my thesis work, which is really nice. I do some work on social prescribing. Um, I do some TA work. So it keeps me busy. That's for right. sure. Oh,
0: well, that, that's really good. Yes. Uh There's more and more people now want to continue uh, to be able to continue to work and do their studies uh, because it it can be quite costly at times going through doing your degree, even though there's funding packages and what have you. it, It isn't meant to be a full time wage. So it's nice that some of you can continue to do that. And I guess online, I'm assuming a lot of your courses are potentially in the evenings and things like that.
1: Absolutely, exactly. So it really works quite nice for somebody who is a full-time
0: working professional. And then, of course, then you get into your, your research part, which, of course, can take a lot of time, too. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I quickly learned that. <laughs> I bet you have. So, so, let's, so let's get on to that. Your research topic is moving healthcare upstream to advance health, health quality, and health equity defining social prescribing and exploring the impact on children and youth long one got the word their quality in their health quality health equity you're talking about children and youth so maybe before we get started on the, the most obvious question just a bit of a synopsis of your research
1: Absolutely. So really what I'm trying to do is address some really big gaps in the evidence base around social prescribing. Uh, and you might be kind of wondering, what is that? That's <laughs> yeah, kind of... That was my first question. <laughs> <laughs> it's always somebody's first question. What is that? Which I love. It really piques everyone's interest. And the funny thing is, I actually don't have a great answer for you right now. I don't have some sort of definition I can bring to you because there's currently no agreed definition of what social prescribing is. So if you went to 10 different people right now, you'd probably get 10 different answers. But according to the World Health Organization, which is kind of who I look to right now, they say that it's a means for healthcare workers to connect patients to a range of non-clinical services in the community to improve health and well-being. So that's kind of the, the idea. Really, when it comes down to it, there's kind of five key parts that I like to think of when I think of social prescribing. So there's this patient, and that is someone who would benefit from being connected with non-medical supports and services in the community to address their social needs. So we're not talking about medical needs here. We're not talking about medical treatment. It's all this kind of non-medical stuff. And then there's the prescriber, of course. So this is often a healthcare provider. And so they have to screen the patient for social needs. And then they give them this social prescription. And oftentimes it's a physical prescription, just like you would get one for medication. And they give that to you for some sort of non-medical support and service. And then there's this person called the link worker. And there's a lot of different terms that are used. But essentially what it comes down to is it's this person who has non-medical expertise and They really have the dedicated time and resources to be able to sit down with the person, to connect with them, and to listen to them, and to co-produce this plan about what they want to do to move forward to connect with their community. And then the social prescription is obviously a very important part. So this is a non-medical prescription. And the really exciting thing is it can actually be almost anything. So sometimes this looks like social groups and activities like maybe a coffee club or an art class or a walking group. Uh, and sometimes it supports for basic needs like food or housing or income. So what I love about the social prescription is it really can be anything and it's completely tailored to what interests the person. And then the last really important piece is the data pathway. So that's kind of this structured data tracking and evaluation pathway that allows for measurement and continuous improvement. So that quality improvement piece comes into it. And so, yeah, that's kind of what social prescribing looks like. So when somebody asks me that, it's not a a clear and simple one sentence kind of answer because it's quite a complex phenomenon. And so what I want to look at is really kind of two major important gaps in the research. And there's a lot of great research out there. I will say that there's a growing body of evidence to suggest that social prescribing can reduce patients' social needs. It can improve patients' health and well-being, uh, not only improve patient experience, but also provider experience. It actually brings joy and work, which I think is wonderful. Uh, It also can reduce healthcare demand and costs, it advances health equity, and beyond that, it actually strengthens communities. So there's a lot of great work out there. It's very exciting but there's also some notable gaps. And so to answer your question, that's really where where my work comes in. So the first one, as I alluded to, is that there is currently no agreed definition of social prescribing. Mm -hmm. And so that's a big problem, right? This concept is kind of nebulous. It's open to many different interpretations. And this is really problematic if we want to try and advance this Area of research and and practice in healthcare because kind of that you know that common language is really that that is you know the crux of this kind of establishing a common understanding with everyone and so that's something that needs to be addressed uh, and at the same time there's really a huge lack of evidence around social prescribing for children and youth so really the the main focus has been on adults. And I've noticed this in Canada, too. There's a huge focus right now on social prescribing for older adults, which, of course, is a really important population. But it's not the only important population. And so children and youth have kind of been uh, forgotten so far in the research. And, you know, I've always been passionate about this population. And when I was doing my, my readings to come up with my proposal, I came across this article by Hayes et al., who conducted the first systematic review of the evidence on social prescribing for children and youth. And I'll tell you, this is the first review I've ever read where they came up with a total of zero articles at the end.
0: Oh, that's a problem for your lit review, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely.
1: (laughs) I was like, oh, this is a first. So yeah, I would say that this is a gap. (laughs) so I thought okay I definitely know where there is a huge gap here and I love researching this population and so absolutely I want to focus on children and youth for my Mm -hmm. for my thesis work as well and so those are the the two kind of big gaps that I'm that I'm focusing on.
0: So before I go on to some of the the other questions we have here my next obvious question, or maybe it's not so obvious, but it is, was to me, is you talked about social prescribing, but you also talked about the WHO definition or the World Health Organization's definition, which is a non-medical one. So who's doing this social prescribing? Is it, is it still in the healthcare unit or a nurse or a doctor or a, a social counsellor? I mean, who is doing this prescribing? Is it, is it someone from the church? Who, who is allowed to do that, if you, if, you, if you wouldn't mind answering that? That is an excellent question.
1: And again, I think it kind of depends on who you ask. But I know there's, there's a lot of people who argue, and I would probably argue, that it, it has to be somebody based in the healthcare system because of that prescribing element, right, to kind of make it that healthcare piece. Uh, and so it doesn't need to be a doctor. I do want to emphasize that. It could be really any kind of professional in healthcare maybe a social worker, maybe a nurse, maybe a doctor, somebody with kind of that authority to be able to prescribe. That's kind of the key part of it. Now, some people also believe that it could be somebody outside of healthcare who also has sort of that authority within the community. Uh, But for the most part, it's agreed that it has to be some sort of uh, professional within the healthcare system.
0: And then again, because if you're looking specifically at children and youth who are these people talking to, to the children and youth, or are they talking to the
1: parents? That's another fabulous question. So, yes, I think that's another reason, actually, why there is so little research on social prescribing for children and youth, because it is a lot more complex, and it looks quite different, right? Because you're right. It's not just the child who's sitting there at the appointment, right? It's oftentimes that they're with their family members. And so, yes, in terms of what that looks like, it would oftentimes be that the child, along with their family members, is the one who's involved in social prescribing and is the one that is receiving the social prescription. But it really depends on their age, right? Once we start getting into youth, and kind of the the teenage years uh, it's oftentimes that it's actually just that individual patient who is getting the prescription.
0: So with that again how do we know they need the social prescription or is it just because of the family member has brought the kid in or whatever and it's like this kid needs to do other things he needs to you know build his own community and have social activities and da 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 da. Now I I wouldn't have thought most parents would go to, say, the a health clinic to ask those sorts of questions. Uh, they would be more inclined to, say, go to the school. Do you know of any activities that are going on or that my kid can join in? So, how do you get past that bit? Because it's right. not a normal thing to, it's not like I've cut, you know, I've broken my arm. What can I do next? It's, you know, who, who decides they need a social prescription? <laughs> That's such an
1: excellent question. Well, uh, sometimes it really kind of surfaces naturally, to be honest. Uh, Sometimes it it becomes really obvious just through that kind of discussion that happens with the provider. And other times it's actually through a screening tool that's used. This is quite common in the United States where the family member actually completes a screening tool for social needs and that's how they will surface. But uh, you bring up a great point about that wouldn't be the place I would think of going to. And the research is actually showing that up to 50% of primary care visits are for non-medical needs. And so people actually are going to their for these reasons, um, oftentimes because they just don't know where else to go, right? But you also bring up a great point about, you know, that's not where everybody is going to go. And especially when it comes to children and youth, that isn't always where they're going to go. And so the UK is really the leader in social prescribing, and they've done the most work around this population so far. And when it comes to social prescribing for children and youth there, it is many times based outside of the healthcare system so that there's many different pathways of entering into this idea of social prescribing. And so sometimes it might be through the school, it might be through the librarian or some other thing within the community some other way of them accessing social prescribing since they might not always go to the healthcare
0: system. And I think that's the hard part, isn't it? Because who? not everyone's going to sort of speak up and saying, I need to find a community to engage in, socially engage in, in whatever that is. Like you said, it could be a sporting activity, but it could be painting and drawing and, and things like that. So um, very, very tricky. So I want to ask you this question then, you talked about some of the gaps so what made first of all i guess what made you want to do this because it's not like you said it's not a not a term that a lot of people are aware of and and is it because of your your past work that you've done that this became something you know what i want to look into that a little bit more because it is a bit of a tricky one because i i've never heard that word social prescription before until i I've read this piece <laughs> so
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I I think it really stems from my interest in public health. So like I said, I completed my master of public health. And after that time, I actually worked in public health for a little bit as a health promoter. And so when I began the PhD in health quality, I thought, okay, I want to try and find a topic that is really, you know, health quality meets public health, this perfect kind of blending. Mm -hmm. And I've always been interested in kind of these upstream approaches to healthcare where you're really looking at addressing health quality from that public health lens of looking further upstream about how we can actually prevent people from using the healthcare system. And so for me, when I came across social prescribing, it was a bit of an aha moment of wow, this is what I'm looking for. this this is it right here. That is just such a perfect blend of you know public health and looking upstream to actually address
0: the problems that our healthcare system currently has. I think when you're talking about the public health system, is this something then that the the city or the province or federally, We should be taking on the the health areas within those domains should be taking on and then they've got a better chance then of getting the word out about it. So there's specific campaigns. I mean, we have that. uh, What's the action one uh, that they have here in in the province? Uh, is Is it providing something like that to get the word out about it? It doesn't always have to be activity as as you know, exercise, there's other things to it. Is that do you think that's the way of getting the message out a little bit better? That would
1: be fabulous that is the dream really right now that's definitely not what it looks like in Canada it's very grassroots it's you know here and there all around the country you know providers uh, family health teams community health centers deciding on their own to implement social prescribing but right. i really do think if we want to advance this that we need to have this happening at the national level which of course is easier said than done because you know we have funding occurring in each province each territory every you know it's like many different little mini healthcare systems and so it's hard to do that at a federal level but there is some hope there's definitely some exciting movement happening at the federal level it was in just march of 2020 that the canadian institute for social prescribing launched which is very exciting for our country we're only the second country in the world to kind of have this national level Institute for social prescribing. And so there is some hope there that we might have some movement at that national level. And that really is key because when it comes to social prescribing, you need a well stocked community, right? Mm -hmm. I I liken that to having a well stocked pharmacy for pharmaceutical prescribing. Otherwise, it's not going to work too well, Right. right? And so for this to work well, we need communities that have all of these community assets and resources to be able to prescribe to our patients. And so we really do need that kind of support at the government level to fund this, to have this happening really properly at that level.
0: That brings me to another question, though, because when we're doing this prescribing and saying, you know, it'd be great if you went and joined this and da-da-da-da, but a lot of these things cost money. And we have community members who don't have the financial means to be able to, for instance, put their kids, even in summer camps and things like that, because they're they're not cost effective for their own budgets. So when you're going through this research, are you also looking at the the cost factor? To, To make something work, it needs to be accessible. And so how can we make a program, and it's great they're doing, they've started this in 2020, but it's now 2022. I still hadn't heard of that, and maybe it's in its infancy, so there's got a lot more work they want to do first before they sort of announce it to the rest of the the country. But are, are you looking in your research of not only what kind of things could be put out or prescribed, but at what levels can people access it due to their financial background?
1: That is a great question. And I think what I love about social prescribing is the emphasis that is placed on equity. And certainly with our social prescribing projects, we do not want to be exacerbating existing inequities, right? That, that is definitely not the idea here. And so something that is a really key part of that link worker role is addressing barriers that patients might have to accessing their social prescription. And so this might be something like providing transportation or providing the funding to be able to, you know, cover that cost that's associated with the activity. And the Alliance for Healthier Communities actually conducted Canada's first social prescribing pilot not too long ago. It was between 2018 and 2020. And it involved 11 different community health centres across Ontario. And one of the great things about it is that the community organisations were actually really supportive about covering the cost of their programs so that the providers could give out social prescriptions for things that would usually cost money, but in this case, they were actually free. So I know a lot of museums and different arts and culture venues in Toronto, and and they're still willing to do this. They're still willing to give out free passes for things so that there isn't
0: that cost barrier, which I just love. Well, well, that's really good to hear because, you know, you can think of even here in Kingston, some of the things, you know, there's lots of programming going on, And we've got some great providers of activities. You look at the Boys and Girls Club and the YMCA and there's other groups, uh, even in Queens, you know, we have various camps and things. But there is a cost factor. Um, And so it's finding that happy balance. And of course, not not everyone in a particular community have the income to be able to do that um, for a a one week period, let alone throughout the year. So it's it's good to hear that. So the partnering of of this is I think is going to be really, really important, isn't it and, and getting that message out and ma- also making sure that it goes to the right children. Um, I'm not saying we shouldn't let other any any child go, but making sure the ones that are where we can offset some of the costs, it's going to the right children f- for that. but of course, all children mm-hmm. need to have outlets. So uh, keeping that is, is going to be really, really important. Absolutely. So what do you expect the impact of your doctoral work to be? Because, I mean, clearly it's, it's, a, it's a fledgling sort of area. <laughs> so I imagine whatever you come out with is going to sort of be helpful, whether it's for that national group or locally. But, but what, what are you hoping your, your own doctoral work will have an impact in?
1: Well, so it. I, I think it looks different for my for my first phase versus my my second and third. So, mm-hmm. really, in my first phase, which is what I'm doing right now, I'm bringing together experts from around the world to come up with some sort of agreement around the definition of social right. prescribing. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing right now. I just finished uh, analysis for round one and I survived to tell the tale. So
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's always good.
1: (laughs) I made it through it. Uh, But it's it's really exciting to see the interest that there is in this research. So in round one, I had 48 experts from 23 different countries around the world. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm really excited. It just shows the interest that exists, right? And how much this has grown around the world in such a short amount of
0: time. So with that, before you continue on, are they all English-speaking countries or is it across the board? Great question. So I would say for the most part
1: they are, but there's a lot of countries that are involved in there where English is not the first language. Uh, But of course, you know, that was something that I had to uh, make very clear that, you know, to be involved, you'd have to be able to speak English because the definitions that are being created are English. And so that really hasn't been a barrier, which is so great. And it speaks to the universality of the English language. Yes. It didn't really matter what country they're in. Um, I've been able to really bring together a group of of almost 50 experts uh, from five different continents. So it's pretty exciting stuff.
0: That is exciting. Yeah. And the next part, so that was phase one. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so that's just phase one. So once that's done, then I'll move into kind of looking at social prescribing for children and youth. So I'll be doing a scoping review to look at the evidence that exists. And then I will be doing a qualitative study to look at the experiences of children and youth who have been involved in social prescribing in Canada. So a lot of exciting stuff happening. So when you when you talk about what is the expected impact I think, you know, when it comes to that first phase, I I really do hope that this will kind of lay the groundwork for the formation of a robust evidence base and and really allow this to move forward. There's so much, you know, great work happening, but I think until we kind of have that foundational piece of what are we talking about here? What is this, (laughs) right? We can't move forward and we can't sort of convince our governments to invest in this, right, until we can all kind of get on the same page. And really, it goes back to a report that was written by the Social Prescribing Network in 2016, when they put a call out for an agreed definition of social prescribing. And so that is kind of what I'm trying to do here is kind of answer that call, and really come together as a group and and come up with something that we can all agree on. And, you know, phase two and phase three is really trying to address that gap around children and youth. And especially within Canada, there really isn't anything on this population yet when it comes to social prescribing. And so really, I want to kind of have this research make its mark as the first Canadian study to look at this population specifically and really move this forward. I think the timing of this is so crucial Mm -hmm. with the COVID-19 pandemic. We know that the impact on children and youth has been really Quite devastating, And so the time is now to have this research come out and really kind of, you know, maybe potentially have a role on pandemic recovery efforts.
0: And I think you can add to that too, thinking about the youth today, children and youth, they do so much on computers. In my day, I know, admittedly, it was a long time ago, we'd go out and play. I don't see, I mean, there are kids still playing, but not to the same extent as when we were kids, because we had no computers. So we couldn't, you know, we were lucky to have TV for one or two hours a day. That was it, um, because we weren't allowed to sit in front of a screen for that long, for anything, anything, anything longer than that. So, you know, like you said, with the pandemic and then the amount of, interaction that the kids today have just on a screen with each other, that's a very different skill set to meeting others in person. Absolutely, I completely agree. I think that need for social connection
1: is so important, not only because of the pandemic, but also, as you say, things like social media, right, that have totally changed what, mm-hmm. what that looks like in terms of connecting with people. And so we really need to become more connected with our communities. And, and that's what I love about this, is it really strengthens that community connection by bringing everyone back together. And, uh, and that's really important for this population.
0: Do you think then that there'll be new positions opening up down the track as part of the the health network within a particular community, such as you know, more emphasis on the youth workers and things, or, or what their role is to help with the social prescribing for our children and our youth, and making it easier for parents to know who to go to, uh, because we, we're all we're always talking, you know don't go to the emergency just for a cut on your knee because you're wasting certain resources for more emergencies. The same would be going to a health unit. If you don't need to see a doctor, what else is there for this particular um, area that I want to discuss? Absolutely. I think it's a really exciting time for
1: social prescribing in Canada. And you know the, the movement around it is just, it, it's growing so rapidly. Mm-hmm. I'm constantly hearing about new social prescribing programs that are starting across the country. And my hope is that we will become closer and closer to the model in the UK, where but... they've actually hired over a thousand link workers so that by 2023, almost 1 million patients in the UK will have been referred to social prescribing. And so they actually are the first healthcare system in the world to have social prescribing embedded into the system. So I would love for us to move towards that and become kind of like that model. Uh, But I, I definitely I'm hopeful about that. I see that there's so much great work happening right now
0: that's amazing. And I think it can only get better. And so you filling in those gaps of it, showing where those gaps are, I should say, is going to be critical moving forward for this and for that national organisation that's got together as well. And and I guess what I would like to bring up next, if you don't mind is, I mean, you know, you're, you're doing all sorts of extracurriculars, you're, you're part of all sorts of different groups, which would give you a bird's eye view of All these kinds of things that we've been talking about of how to make those connections and who should be doing what in the health system or outside the health system. And looking at this, you know, you're on internationally, you're on the Global Social Prescribing Student Council, uh, you're on the National Academy for Social Prescribing Uh, you remember there, nationally on Canadian social prescribing, student collective and community of practice, provincially on the Ontario social prescribing and the public health community, and of course locally, you know, the health centre social prescribing project member down in the the Niagara region. did you, were you a part of these before going into this work or is it something you say, you know what, I need to know more so what a better way to is to sign up and be a member of all these different groups so I can hear what's going on?
1: Yeah, so it kind of came about because of my my interest in this, because of my thesis work. And to be honest, I think the timing of this work is so great because a lot of those things that you mentioned have just kind of started. They've been created. They've emerged right. while I've been doing my thesis work. So the timing is quite nice. Uh, particularly the Canadian Social Prescribing Student Collective. That was actually something that I started with two other students in March at the same time that the Canadian Institute for Social Prescribing was starting. So we really noticed that there was a lot of interest among students and a need to kind of build that social prescribing student movement in Canada. And so it really, it has just taken off. It's been so exciting to see the interest across the country And uh, just, you know, since uh, since March, we already have brought together uh, more than 80 members across Canada. They span six different provinces, 16 different post-secondary institutions. And and really, we're just trying as a group to try and build this student movement to contribute to the larger movement
0: across uh, across the country on social prescribing. That's brilliant. That's really sure. brilliant. And then with the work that you're doing internationally, you can sort of bring in some of those areas to, to help as well, to get a, an understanding of what could potentially work here in Canada. Because even though you, you think, you know, the model in the UK is doing really, really well, that's one, obviously the biggest one <laughs> right now. <laughs> and that's a great example But would that model work here, do we need to make some changes to suit the Canadian environment? And so sometimes you have to hear what's going on in other countries, even if it's not as well coordinated as in the UK.
1: Absolutely, yes. I think the, the opportunity with the Global Social Prescribing Student Council has been really great to be able to connect with all of the different student groups mm-hmm. across the world, especially in the UK, because they are, like I said, the leaders, their student group is also the original group. They're right. well-established now. They have medical students from every medical school in the UK Um, But I do think you're right, that we are a very unique country, just even because of our size, right? (laughs) How that creates challenges for us. Um, Even as simple as just trying to come up with a meeting, right? When we have so many students in so many different time zones, it can (laughs) be quite challenging. But it is really uh, just exciting to see how quickly we've been able to grow. And I know the UK group is quite proud of us with
0: what we've been able to do in in just our few uh, short months of existence. Well. I take my hat off to you. I mean, this topic is not going to go away. Hopefully it will never go away. And uh, it's nice that you're getting in at the grassroots level of it. So, you know, you're starting it up and you you can have, um, be proud to show that, you know, you, you start, help start this, help start this movement and then let's see see it grow. And with the work that you're doing too. So, you know, it won't be long before you're an expert in all of this. And we can oh. say, yes, she's a Queen's student, a Queen's grad. <laughs> yeah, thank you. You've made my day. <laughs> so well well done with this, Caitlin. And I, like I said, we are very proud of the work that you're doing. And we wish you every success, not only in your PhD, but also moving forward with this because this is, um, it's it's important for our, our children and our youth uh, to have something like this. I mean, we will always hear about, some of our youth and things that seem lost, not sure what to do. Well, hopefully, this can help. Uh, be a be a part of uh, of helping that. So thank you, thank you for bringing it forward for people to realise there is something that we can do. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate that. Good one. Okay, everyone, a another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget, you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. Just type in a Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray.